Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of JIRA, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal, and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello guys, gals and non-binary pals. You're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny and feminist advice on life, love and whether or not you should break up with that no good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, we know that the answer is always yes. I'm your host, Clementine Ford, author of the books Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys and author of the upcoming, if I ever finish writing it, book of personal essays, How We Love, which is technically supposed to be out in October. Just a heads up to everyone who's listening to today's episode that we do talk a lot about some quite triggering content. We're discussing sexual assault, sexual harassment in parliament, rape culture. We do have reference as well to suicide. And if you do need to contact anyone after listening to this show, then I have helpline numbers on the liner notes. You can also call 1-800-RESPECT if you're experiencing sexual assault or harassment in your own relationship. I am joined today by one of my very best friends. She was actually one of the first guests on the Big Sister Hotline back when it was like a 20-minute little digest. And I'm so thrilled to have her back because we have lots to talk about always. She's wonderful. She's incredibly clever. She's a feminist. She's the host of Cher Sheila Femme, which used to be a live monthly salon in Melbourne. And which is now coming back as a podcast. She's a writer. She's authored two books. She is the best friend that everyone wants to have. She's she's the mother I always wanted. That's not true. I had a great mum, but um, she is a great mum too. She is Karen Pickering. Hello. What an intro. How are you? I'm I'm great. I'm trying very hard not to be dragged down into the bog of eternal stench that is our public sphere here in Australia, but uh, I'm well. Mm-hmm. How are you going? I mean, much the same, really. I p- People who listen to this podcast regularly will notice that I didn't do an episode last week, which was in part because I've just been completely overwhelmed by work um, trying to finish this fucking book. Um, but also, I just feel like the feeling that will be familiar to so many of us, just completely overwhelmed by the rage of it all and by the reminder once again that women in this country are second. I mean, Karen, why don't you, for anyone who may not be an Australian listener or who may not have been like super au fait with the news, just give Mm. a little pressy of what's been happening. Oh, just a quick round up. Well, um, (laughs) uh, our Attorney General, of course, the highest legal authority in the land, uh, has publicly denied an historical rape allegation that has been posthumously raised after the victim has taken her own life. He's denied the allegations. The Prime Minister has defended his right to deny those allegations without actually engaging with them. Well, and not just defended his right to deny those allegations. Because, of course, legally, as much as I hate him, he does have the right to deny those allegations. But more importantly, on Scott Morrison's part, the part of our Prime Minister, he said, I've spoken to him, essentially, obviously I'm paraphrasing, I've spoken to him and he said he didn't do it. And I trust and that's him. That's good enough for me. It's good enough for me. And that's rape culture in yep. one microcosm. He said he didn't do it. 
I asked him, he said he didn't do it, and that's good enough for me. Mm-hmm. Bang. And so the women of Australia obviously saw it a little bit differently. Uh, scholars of political economy and, and you know, political integrity and reputation management obviously thought that maybe, you know, the Attorney General should stand down while an investigation or an independent inquiry happens. The Prime Minister and the Attorney General demurred. Uh, and that really was... He did, he did take mental health time off though yeah which, it was very upsetting which is also which is also rape culture <laughs> well this is this is ruining his life it's very it's had a very severe impact on his mental well-being so to, for people who don't know the davo acronym yeah. deny attack reverse, reverse the the order the victim order yeah so it was textbook davo so textbook abuser slash um, beneficiary of rape culture, which we see happen over and over again where men frame themselves as the victim of this heinous attack that is accusing them of being a rapist as though that's worse than actually being sexually assaulted. It's sort of Mm. like, you know, there are parallels with um, white people feeling like it's more disgusting to be called a racist than to be a racist so we see this kind of absurdity playing out that's on top of the fact that Brittany Higgins uh, a young woman who was a liberal staffer came forward recently to say that she believes she was raped in Parliament House so we start to get this picture coming together of what the culture is like in that building and as a workplace. Can can I just be more specific and say that Brittany Higgins, I, I understand that you're probably tiptoeing for legal care, but Brittany Higgins came forward and said she was raped yes. in Parliament House and yes. there is evidence to strongly support mm-hmm. that allegation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, obviously you and I can sit here in my kitchen and say that, again... That we believe... That we believe. She's telling yeah, the truth. We believe that she's telling the absolutely. truth. Absolutely. And there is a security guard who was on staff that night who came out this week and said, I still have not been questioned about what I saw. But also that security guard saying that after Brittany Higgins and a a colleague of hers um, entered Parliament House at one in the morning, extremely drunk and disappeared into the offices in which they work. And that the next morning... The security guard has opened the door of an office, found a young woman, staffer, naked and completely inebriated, passed out on a couch and considers that enough of a welfare check to make sure that she's still breathing before Mm. leaving and carrying on with her day. Now, what does that tell you about the culture inside Parliament House? If a security guard finds that and thinks that is within the realm of normal expected findings. I mean, I've worked in offices before and I don't think that that would be considered a normal thing that you would walk in and see that scenario play out and not feel as though perhaps someone had come to some harm or Mm. not feel as though it was your duty of care to take it further. So it Mm. says to me that anyone who has had anything to do with people who work in Canberra, parliaments, the union movement, party politics at the branch level, knows that there's a problem with alcohol abuse. There's a problem with partying. There's a problem with the treatment of women. There's a problem, like there are so many levels of problems. And so clearly from that, just that one story we can see what parliament house is like for young women and we didn't even need to make that conclusion for ourselves because also in the last week there's been more stories of the kind of antics that happen in parliament house among staffers and look i'm the the particular stories that came out were about uh liberal party staffers mm-hmm. but let's not pretend that this isn't across the board it's definitely bipartisan fuckery um you know and one staffer correctly had his employment terminated because his involvement in a um, a group going a, me- a Facebook messenger group going back two years was exposed in which they were all sharing 
like horribly misogynistic and uh, um, the kind of behaviour that you should not be indulging in at work but sharing it amongst each other as this sort of like one-upmanship and this particular staffer who lost his job did so because there was video footage of him masturbating over the desk of a female MP. Now, the problem with these things is that obviously, as you say, Karen, there is a culture of misogyny, a culture of homophobia, even though a lot, obviously a lot of people who work in Parliament House are gay, mm-hmm. I think that there's still that kind of like toxic masculinity. Absolutely. Um, uh, there's a culture of, of dismissiveness and also a real culture of entitlement. We work in the most senior uh, business we're powerful. As it were, in the land, and we can do whatever we want. Yep. So the sacking of that one particular staffer for being caught wanking over the desk of one of his female superiors, because this is the other thing as well. I'm not saying it's worse that it was someone on his own side. I'm just saying that the fact that it was someone on his own side means that he can't even say, well, I got caught up in the political animus it, of it. It wasn't an ideological opposition yeah, to yeah. her. It was that she's a woman yeah. and she's in a position of authority over me. And, and I don't like that. And that makes me hate her enough to film myself ejaculating on her desk but also and sharing it with my friends. Film myself doing that for the purpose of uh, building capital amongst my male peers. It tells you what they value. Yeah. That that he would have been, you know, celebrated as like mm. hilarious and brave and everything else. So that's what I'm saying is the fact that it's just this one guy who's lost his job. That it's he's not an outlier and this mm. is the problem with men's violence against women. He just got it, caught. Yeah, it's always treated as this outlier. You know, well it just happens on the fringes of society. Most men are good and decent and wonderful and would never ever 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 do things like this. And you're like, okay, let's just for a second pretend that that's true it's not true but let's just for a second pretend that it is yeah still in the most senior business place the most senior workplace in the whole of the fucking country men like that are operating so if it's true that most men don't do it we still need to accept that's not true Mm. I just want to continually repeat that Mm -hmm. if you believe that it's true most men don't do that you still have to accept that you cannot pick the environments in which men who do those things will operate. And actually it is worse that it's parliament. It actually is worse because these are positions of public trust. Mm. They're positions that are funded and paid for by taxpayers. They're positions that where the workers should be held to a higher standard than any business. Um, and in the case of, you know, the Attorney General, it's literally a symbolic position mm to symbolise the law of the land. And so if the person, you know, th- this, like we say, this this playground of frat boy misogyny and uh, entitlement um, goes from the bottom to the top, if it's the most senior ministers in the cabinet mm. and also these junior staffers – it's an endemic problem throughout the entire place. And as you said, it is not party specific. As much as I love to sink the boot into the Liberal Party, I've worked in the union movement, I've been around Labor politics my whole life. I've had similar things happen around me and seen similar things take place. And I think this is the thing that if you ask the average any woman or any teenage girl, um, if you said this guy's been caught wanking on a desk and filming it and sharing it with his friends, are you surprised by that? Mm. Is that the most outrageous or the most outlandish example of toxic masculinity that you've seen? Mm. I think teenage girls would laugh you out of the place. Mm. They would say, worse shit than that happens every day at school. Mm-hmm. So this is not to, um, not to take away from the seriousness of what's happening in Parliament and how egregious it is and how disgusting it is, but I do think... It's a problem across all of society mm. and through social media, through other position, you know, other people abusing their positions of power. Well, I think that, you know, um, there is a pathway to power for these young boys in private schools. Mm-hmm. And again, like, yes, of course, we, we need to repeat 
that uh, it's not limited to the upper classes. It's not limited to people born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Of course, misogyny is exercised everywhere in different ways and according to the power of the men in the spheres in which they're operating. Absolutely. But people love to assume because they're classist Mm -hmm. and because they want to ignore the problem of misogyny in the wealthy classes uh, because that's where the major- that is where the power is hoarded and maintained. That is where patriarchy finds its mo- it finds its like deepest roots. It's not in the working class, even though of course misogyny exists there. It is in the the middle to upper classes who control the system. Absolutely, and so there is a pathway to power from these young boys that are born into privilege, sent to private schools. Particularly in Australia, the private school system is fucked, and it completely hoards this power from the beginning and it maintains it and it gives the impression to these young people that they were born to rule and that they deserve it. And if if people want to believe, you know, whenever I've spoken out against private school boys and their antics and their misogyny and how and saying this is where it begins, I'm always met with backlash obviously. But one of the things that I'm always kind of, uh, you know, a- abused for is these are just boys, they're just learning. Boys will be boys. They can't have this stain on their record forever, et cetera, et cetera. You're bullying them. You're bullying them. You're bullying them. Aren't you just as bad as them, if not worse, for sharing their names and so on and so forth? And I think just like you said, Karen, it's not just it's not just how many girls are suffering in their immediate environments because these boys are doing these things to them and we just expect them to get over it because, well, they're just learning. They're just learning how to be humans. They're just yeah. making their mistakes. Why girls are you being have such, to absorb it. Why are you being such a bitch about it? But actually, because no one is intervening at these crucial points, because they certainly didn't intervene when they were little boys, when it needed to have started, but because they're not intervening at this point, those boys will just like fly unrestrained into the positions and the roles and the power that they were born to believe was theirs. Yeah. And that's how you end up with young men wanking over desks in Parliament House, raping young women in Parliament House and becoming the Attorney General despite these historical rape allegations, which he absolutely knew about it, uh, knew about, and that, is, that has been confirmed by other testimonies. Mm-hmm. Ending up in these positions of power where they get to make laws that absolve other men like them later on. Absolutely. And like you said, that pipeline to power from being born into this this privileged position and then these schools, which absolutely are nurseries mm. of privilege mm. and they they – they don't just give the impression that you're special and that you deserve that you're born to rule and you deserve to wield power over others. They explicitly tell them that mm. from a very young age. You are the you are going to become prime minister. Like these stories about Tony Abbott and you know that the the foundational mythologies of politicians so often include these kind of he's going to be prime minister. He'll one be day. prime minister one day, and he will. Whether he's qualified or a man, or a man not. who looks just like him will be. Yeah, and so we see. But no one, that no one ever says that the boy born into you know working class um, poverty, the 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 young boy of colour. No one ever says confidently about him. Oh, he's going to be prime minister one day. And if they did, people would be like, "Yeah, right, pull the other one," because we don't expect that men who exist outside of these environments. Uh, either are capable of it or deserve it. And probably the last Prime Minister that we had who was from a working class background is Paul Keating, and that's 30 years ago, and that's someone who still came up through the party system. And so if you looked at the makeup of Parliament, how many parliamentarians are men, Mm. how many of them went to private schools, how many of them are lawyers, Mm. and as we've seen, Christian Porter has How many now, of their fathers were pol- politicians? Absolutely. And Christian Porter has brought defamation proceedings against the national broadcaster and one journalist in particular who's known as a ferocious advocate for victim survivors um, in order to intimidate them. So lawyers know 
mm. how to commit crimes and get away with it. Lawyers know how to defend themselves. They know how to manipulate the system. And most of the parliament is lawyers. Well, okay, and so this is the other thing as well. Firstly, I just want to read this quote from um, Theresa Malkiel, who I wrote about recently on International Women's Day because a lot of people don't understand the history they're not aware of the history of International Women's Day, which was born out of the socialist labour movement and the working women's movement. Um, anyway, Therese Malkiel is, is basically the one responsible. She was a, a European migrant living in New York and she was working class. She was the first woman who rose from the factory floor to be a leader in the socialist movement, uh, a woman. Um, so she wrote a 1909 essay on socialism and gender equality, which was called Where Do We Stand on the Woman Problem? And I just want to add this into the conversation because, it, you know, just to be clear that this is a bipartisan issue. She wrote, for the working woman of today finds herself between two fires. One, On the one hand, she faces the capitalist class, her bitterest enemy. It foresees a far-reaching danger in her emancipation and with all the ability of its money, power, tries to resist her eventual advent into the civilised world. In her anguish, the working woman turns towards her brothers in the hope to find a strong support in their midst. But she is doomed to be disillusioned, for they discourage her activity and are utterly listless towards the outcome of her struggle. Which, fuck, man, when I read that, I was like, well, how fucking true is that of a lot of men in the union movement? Yeah, and we just, I just, um, for International Women's Day, did a an event uh, where we hosted a screening of Brazen Hussies, this new documentary uh, by Catherine Dwyer, which is amazing. Uh, a shortened version of, of it is on iView at the moment, but you can still see it at the cinema. And it's about the women's liberation movement in Australia in the 70s, um, which obviously, you know, comes in for some criticism as well as celebration. But one of the really shocking, confronting moments in the film is archival footage of women at the time in the 70s saying that they can't have these conversations with other socialists and other Marxists. They're telling the men that they work with, that they struggle with, that they campaign with and who they support at home and Mm. at work. Um, I'm a victim of this treatment. I'm being violently harassed. I've been raped. I've experienced sexual assault. I couldn't get an abortion. And they're finding that these men not only don't care and won't help them, but have exactly the same contempt for them Mm. and their problems as the men that they consider to be their enemies, like the bosses or Mm. the ruling class. So it is a massive fault line through the various progressive movements that we don't have a cohesive uh, – we don't have cohesive support for feminism and women's rights. But at the moment we're watching the Liberal Party in Canberra implode Mm. under the weight of, I think, a dam breaking and women feeling – women like Brittany Higgins who is a Liberal staffer but who is the beneficiary of many decades of of – the women's rights movement, bringing her to the point where she's able to, she feels empowered to speak her truth. Mm. And what she's done is incredible. And that now is changing the face of not just people's understanding of how Canberra operates, which I think is important, but what these men in these positions of power do and what they think they can get away with Mm. and you and I both know that this happens at law firms and mechanics workshops and football clubs and schools and happens everywhere but the fact that it's happening in parliament is um different and important and I think that the fact that it's being exposed and there's a relentless tide of new information coming out I think is exciting I'm curious about how this might change the perception of young women, young women in particular, but also women of all ages who have always been lifelong liberal voters. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, obviously we know that this is that misogyny and violence against women and men's violence against women and sexual assault and harassment and the, there's just the struggle to be seen uh, um, the struggle to be treated with dignity in a system that will always remind you first and foremost that you're a woman, that this crosses all political lines. But 
liberal women and conservative women in particular have always been very good at denying that reality. Mm-hmm. We don't need feminism anymore. Well, I've never experienced sexual harassment. This has never happened to me. Sort of hiding behind their privilege, well, yeah. whether it's their race or their and, class. And whether, whether or not it has actually happened to them and they just feel like they don't want to talk about that, which is a completely separate issue and I, and I would understand that. But this, it's this very public um, display of allegiance mm-hmm. To the system, a, rem- a re- reminder to men that they work with and men who operate in their spheres, I'm not a threat to you. But I'm not one of those women. So is this going to impact th- their perception as well? Like, like to realise, are they being met now with this realisation, fuck, actually I've spent my whole life pledging allegiance to the system and to these men only to realise now that they don't care. And it hasn't protected me. It hasn't protected me. It certainly hasn't protected other women who look like me. And, and yeah, again, like I want to be careful that to an extent, I mean, there's a lot of privilege at play here and I have no sympathy for women who had the power to speak out about sexism, sexism in general but perpetuated the myth that it's not real because it got them something in the workplace. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if how you could operate in that, how you ca- could have been in that mindset at one point and now not still be able to say, okay, look, it's really bad. But I want to add too that left-wing women have felt exactly the same. How many left-wing women have not gone and made a report, not blown the whistle, not including myself, not gone public with the treatment I'm not that saying, they find I'm not themselves saying that on the receiving I'm, end of out of solidarity out of yeah. I don't want to undermine the union movement I don't want to hurt Labor's chances of winning I don't want to you know I don't want to scupper this campaign that's going so well but there is there is yeah I to be very clear I am I don't think that any woman has an obligation to report something mm. that has been per- perpetrated against her of this nature mm. As you have said yourself in the past, women and victim survivors heal and recover from trauma in a number of different ways and however way they choose to do that, if they are even able to do that because of the impact of that trauma. Mm. But however they choose to do it is theirs alone and it's not up for debate. And I 100% support that. What I'm saying is that that where you tell the lies to yourself about the system, you know, where you're the liberal woman who stands up and says, well, I've never experienced this Mm. or... I think you're right that it is changing and I, you know, I want more and more people to come forward about it. I don't think that... I don't personally think that... um, that the argument of, you know... I don't think it makes you a bad union member if you criticise the union movement. I don't think it makes you a bad you know, um, progressive if you call out progressive men it makes for their you, sexism. It makes you a bad union member if you can't handle criticism of the movement that would make the movement better. Yeah, and if you collude in mm. the protection of abusers for the sake of, you know... The bigger picture. Yeah, political... <coughs> John Setka. <coughs> yeah, exactly. And that, you know, that's a, a, a an incredibly clear example yeah. of men in the union movement choosing to side with an, a, a convicted abuser. And not even choosing to side with him quietly for the good of the movement, you know. But to – I remember when – so for background for people who aren't aware, John Setka was a union boss who – He's still a union boss. <laughs> still a union boss. Yeah. So John Setka a couple of years ago um, pled guilty to – an assault against his wife and a, a matter of family violence. So he has a conviction uh, and he has been, still is and at the time was ferociously supported by members of his union. Mm-hmm. What, what was he the head the of? CFMMU. The CFMEU. CFMEU. Ferociously supported by members of the union who all said that this was an attack on him, an attempt to bring the union movement down, even though he ended up, he pled guilty but, I mean, it. he played down. He played, you know, there were, course, there were many, do. many uh, offences that he didn't end up being... He made a deal, basically. He made a deal. So He made a deal. But still, it, wa- it, wasn't, that, it wasn't that men in his, in his particular union as well were just like, well, look, we're going to stand by John. And that would be fucked. It was that they showed their support for him by chanting his Tub name, thumping. by, you know, having, having parties in his honour... Mm. 
It was a defiance yeah. of of the cult, of the politically correct culture that says, now you can't yeah. knock your missus around. I mean, it's like a kind of nightmare. It's like a horror movie. That whole thing unfolding was that it wasn't so much – like some people in the union movement – and to be clear, many other parts of the union movement, including female-led unions – condemned John Secker. It wasn't the movement behind mm. him. It was his branch mm. behind him. And the head of the union movement, Sally McManus, publicly called for him to stand down and he refused. Now, that straight away, that to me, says that he doesn't give a shit about the union movement. Mm-hmm. If he's willing to undermine the, the, the head of the union movement and her authority as a woman by saying, well, too bad, if you want me to step down, I won't, then he's putting himself ahead of the cause Mm -hmm. that to me tells me everything I need to know about him but many people within this his branch not not it's not so much that they thought oh well he didn't do it this is a trumped up charge it was that they said this is between him and his wife yeah it's private matter she's standing by him she's standing by him and you know this is and also John Secker was treated very badly by successive Liberal governments at the federal level. That's true. He was pursued relentlessly. That's true. Every excuse was wheeled out as to why it was really okay for him well, to have had a really is, violent argument is, with his wife. This is an example of how men are often excused that men's trauma, which is real. I yeah, don't want to undermine that. It is real. That that being, say, for example, in John Setka's case, being pursued by successive liberal governments and being harassed in the workplace in that sense, well, that makes that that makes someone who's under a lot of pressure oh, put someone under a lot of pressure. So yeah. if he goes if he goes home and just you know knocks a bit knocks his wife around a bit, I mean, like it's not great, hey, but he's under a lot of pressure. And just women clear, are always the collateral damage exactly. of men's trauma. And the fact that she came forward and said, you know, I've forgiven him, I'm standing by him, um, and she's a very powerful woman in her own right, um, to me didn't matter. No. Because same. I think that whatever, again, that's how between what, them. Whatever victim survivors do to mm. make it through is up to them. And I stand with her and behind her no matter what, even though I'm sure she would have choice words for me for um, – <laughs> for what I've said about her husband. But this is the thing. To be clear, he the charges that he pled guilty to were uh, more in the range of verbal abuse. So we've been like kind of using the um, colloquial expression of like knocking your wife around um, was our gallows humour as feminists. But um, he, among well, other we, we things, were using irony to... Yeah, he said he was going to put a gun to her head. He, it was really serious stuff. And I don't doubt that he was someone deeply affected and traumatised by the, the the level of harassment and ill treatment that he received from the authorities. But for his branch to say his skills as an organiser and as a leader are more valuable and more important to the union movement than for female union members to feel safe and respected um, – I think showed that the union movement is yet to reach a level of maturity and a level of understanding of what's at stake here Mm. because the average union member is not a guy working on the docks or a construction site. The average union member is a middle-aged woman. She's a nurse or a healthcare worker. She's in her forties. She's very modestly paid and she's hardcore union died in the wool. And that's who has to be, listen to and respect to the new new movement, not necessarily the loudest voice or the biggest thug. Well, I just l- looked up John Setka because I was trying to get the exact charges and uh, an article was published on the 26th of February, so just a couple of weeks ago, um, and it says, in a wide-ranging interview to be broadcast online this week. So I'm, I'm going to read this <laughs> little bit out because I think that this speaks to how it speaks to that experience of being gaslit by men who express violence 
towards women and also gaslit by the society around them that excuses it and ignores it and sweeps it under the carpet, that they can turn around and say, well, you, you wouldn't find anyone who supports women more than me. So in a wide-ranging interview to be broadcast online this week, Mr Setka talked, about his, talked up his record as a unifier within the union and his dedication to the rights of members while maintaining he was a champion for the growing number of women in the construction industry. Mr. Setka said he frequently told male construction workers to imagine how they would feel if their wife, mother, daughter or niece was treated poorly on a work site. Women are equals. You've just got to treat them as equals because they are our equals. They're human beings. They're union members. I mean, just because they're females doesn't mean they're inferior or anything. That was a quote from him from this broadcast. Uh, so interestingly, the, the broadcast was on uh, – I'm going to read again from the article – Mr. Setka was one of the first guests on new series Melbourne Calling, a podcast featuring pr- prominent Melburnians hosted by socialist councillor for Yarra, <laughs> Stephen Jolly. Now, Another familiar name. Yeah, if anyone doesn't know, and I should, disclaimer, Stephen Jolly used to be married to a, a friend of mine and like so many people, I was not aware of the allegations that would come out against Stephen Jolly, allegations of harassment, um, particularly from younger women. So, yeah, like I've, I've worked with him in the past. Um, I don't want anyone to be listening to go, well, you worked with him. Like, yeah, I did. Mm. And I didn't know. And the moment that I found out was the moment that he was dead to me. Mm. Um, but this is – the problem is that men who abuse women across a, a variety of different ways – of course, there's a huge spectrum of abuse and expressions of abuse – but men who perpetrate abuse – do it behind closed doors or they do it in plain sight. So this is the other thing, you know, the men who surround themselves with politically progressive rhetoric and behaviours and belief systems. Mm-hmm. No, oh, you'll you never talk the talk. Yeah, you'll never find someone who supports women more than me. But the way that they talk up their respect and admiration for women, I mean, often they'll call them females. <laughs> But, <laughs> but that's a really good example too of Setkar um, trumpeting his achievements as a, an inclusive organiser in the CFMMU because that branch does have some incredible wins in terms of getting toilets on sites for women and get you know yeah. m- making actual demonstratively dem- demonstratively demonstrably, demonstrably yeah. um, improving the lives of the, of its female members. Now, that can be true at the same time as he's an abuser. Well, you can also genuinely care about the rights of your of, of women who are working in your union. You can genuinely go out into the world and be like, I think and that women fight should for be... Them. You'd yeah. fight, and you can believe yourself to be an advocate for women's rights and still go home and uh, choose to abuse your partner secretly, privately, in a, in a range of different ways because everything about patriarchy and the way that it weaponizes masculinity to, to be toxic mm. or the way that it can weaponize masculinity tells you that you have that right. Absolutely. And it's not that big a deal. And it's I, because you're doing all of this great work as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, in some cases I think that these men, I say these men, um, who get into these, you know, violent – use this violent rhetoric in the in the arguments with their wives they're like oh you know she gives as good as she gets you know we we are equal so therefore i just treat her like i would treat anyone else it just fundamentally misunderstands the spectrum of misogyny and how your treatment of one woman is your treatment of all women Mm. and that's the thing that you know, how many times have we heard men who proclaim to be feminists describe a woman that they work with or their ex as like a crazy bitch? Yeah. Or, you know, their mother in law fucking drives me fucking crazy. She's, oh, it's you know. a red flag. And the moment a man describes a woman as crazy, get out of whatever and situation that's the thing, you're in. They can't within. think that about one woman and that be an exception. Mm. And that just means that the truth has. Well, it means come that out. she's behaved in a way that's made him pissed off. Yeah. And she deserves it. I also want to just circle back as well to say that, you know, again, pointing out that that men exist on both sides of the political spectrum, that the Labor Party chose to run Bill Shorten 
as the leader of the Labour Party in a position that had they won that election, he would have been elected Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. Bill Shorten also had an historical rape allegation against him and charges were dropped. The police chose not to pursue, which has always been the excuse that he and his supporters have used. But leaving aside that, how are we in a position where people are like, yeah, well, he had a rape allegation against him, but, you know, he didn't do it. He didn't do it. When so, we know, not, like, not, just don't run those men yeah, for fucking prime minister. Exactly. Even if it, even if you decide that as a as a um, measure of just political expediency, keep your fucking house clean. Yeah, you know. But because that also does send a message. It says, you know what? If historical rape allegations are brought against you, you no longer have the confidence of this party, or you know, until it's resolved one way or the other, and so often it can't be. And the idea that, you know, oh, well, we're going to be opening up the floodgates, that all of these women will come out and they'll just be using it as political Good. strategies. Good. Political, political, <laughs> you know, they'll just be destroying men's lives. Yeah. If it happened to me, it could happen to you. It could happen. Oh, God. And you're right. Like, this this ends up becoming, you know... Um, Schrodinger's rapist is the wrong term, but uh, but this ends up becoming the the worst thing that could happen to you is be, to be accused of well, sexual assault. Well, just imagine if it wasn't oh, true. We know that women we know <laughs> women lie all the time. Actually, in fact, Laura Bates, who wrote Men Who Hate Women, uh, this is a British stat, but it would be similar here. Um, Laura Bates found that men are two hundred times more likely to be assaulted themselves. Men are two hundred times more likely to be victim survivors of rape than they are to be "quote unquote" falsely accused. Mm-hmm. And that's without even going into what what classifies as a false accusation, and and what people will say of a false accusation. That you know, people will walk around and say, "Oh, well, my mate was falsely accused," and it's like, no, the charges were just dropped against him because the police couldn't find enough evidence. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. It means that these things don't happen in the fucking street. And also, we like the statistics say, if, if you're a mathematician, right, and you, which I'm not, or a statistician. Well, you're a girl. You, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> not good with numbers. Um, you would, and you, you were not including any kind of emotional, ideological um, information in this assessment. You would say, on balance of probability... It's mm. most likely to be true. Mm. Well, and also what all of the, this myth that like, well, women do it for fame. They do it for attention. They do it for money. And you think, okay, well, there's not a lot of women who've come out um, with allegations against powerful men who are now living in mansions. Do you remember the name of the woman who brought the exactly. allegation against Bill Shorten? I don't. No. Shamefully, I no. don't. No. And, you know, Feminist Next Door, who who was on the podcast in its early, you know, one of its earliest episodes, she had a great tweet that, you know, went massively viral where she was like, basically, I'm going to paraphrase, she said, do you remember the name of any one of the 50 women who brought allegations against Bill Cosby? No. So why, who, who are all these women doing it for attention and fame? In fact, we know that all that people who come out with allegations get, and this includes men who mm. come out with allegations mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. other powerful people, that all they get is public approbation, ridiculed, mockery, disbelieved. And for me, one of the things that has caused the most um, frustration, and this is not even dealing with the, the um, extremeness of sexual assault, but... When you say things, when you report things that have happened to you and people are like, no, nah, I don't reckon, no, nah, I don't reckon, that has been so much more hurtful than dealing with the consequences mm. of what actually happened. Why would anyone make up a story? But it does speak to this whole like, well, women are just crazy bitches. They just want to destroy a man's life. No, they would just like you to stop fucking raping and sexually assaulting them. Yeah, or people – I've had experiences where I've told, you know, trusted, loved people – uh, you know, confidence, um, something that happened or something that I witnessed or something that, that was done to me. And the other thing that's incredibly hurtful and very common is that they'll kind of have so much discomfort mm. with what you're saying that they'll maybe just jump to sort of rationalising it. Like, are you sure that they weren't just mucking around or, yep. you know, because... They probably didn't mean it like that. Because the idea that it's, that it's true and that someone behaved towards you with just such hatred Mm. is very difficult for people to sort of just sit with and hold space for and so people will so often even though they love you and they want to believe you they just don't want to believe that that sort of shit just happens all the time Mm. except other women other women are most likely to say yep well 
Well, and also that's, that because, to me that's too. because we're all hysterical and we just freak out if a man even looks at us. That now, I don't know if you guys all know this, but now we can just accuse a man of rape when he just looks at us in the street. Like all of this, if you want to talk about hysteria, mm. that's actually what would classify as an hysterical response. The idea that women actually speaking out about violence that we've experienced and been subjected to throughout our lives oh, well, now men are just going to be criminalised for even existing. Good, mm. good, mm. finally. And that, you, That's the Schrodinger's rapist thing that, um, that, that we're told all the time to be wary of rape because it's just out there waiting for us to stumble into nobody it. Nobody does make, it. It just makes the wrong choice. Yeah. yeah. But then when we come out and say, hey, this bad thing was done to me, people mm. are like, what a liar. By this man. We, most men are good. Yeah. Most men would never do anything like that. Yeah. And it's borne out by like you, you look at Jane Gilmore's work, which is obviously incredible. How she she not just fix fix and it's called fixed it, but she not only fixes the headlines where sexual assault and rape of children is euphemized mm. as like sex scandal with teenager when mm. it's like that's child rape, um, but she also looks at like the passive voice and how rape is just this kind of like storm that rolls in mm. and. Someone, you know, a woman is raped, not a man rapes a woman. Mm. And so every Woman single, killed by bus. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. Like a, a, even the fact that like I'm a survivor of sexual assault myself and I talk about my rape. Mm. I mean, it's not mine. Mm. I didn't do it. But it's a kind of like linguistic turn or a linguistic kind of trick that – is permeated throughout our culture, whether it's the newspaper or courts or our textbooks or our mm. movies or anything that we kind of consume. Well, rape and sexual assault and sexual harassment even are things that the, that society wants us to believe and how rape culture functions is by telling us that these things belong to women and that they belong to us because we did something yeah, to make them happen we to us. We invited it. We went out onto the street one day when there were clouds in the sky and we mm -hmm. didn't take our umbrella and then there was a downpour and we got soaked. What did we expect? And like, what did you expect when you walked out without your umbrella? That's on you. But rape and sexual assault and sexual harassment can never be within the concept of rape culture and the practice of rape culture can never be things that are actually perpetrated by real living, breathing men mm. because then we would need to acknowledge and accept that the people who perpetrate these things are complicated and they're complicated by the fact that a lot of they people could love be a them. Dad. They and they could often be, are yeah, a dad. They could be really great at their job at advocating for women in their workplace. They could also be really great mentors at the local footy club looking mm. after young blokes. You know, there's there's so many and then when that when it becomes, you know, undeniable that these quote unquote good men have done this terrible thing, it's treated as a well, it's out of character. Mm. That's so out of character mm. for him to do mm. that. And you and I were talking about this what on the could phone. She, the what other did day. she do to make him what did do she that? Do? Or he was he's been going through a very tough time, you know, his wife left him and that's why he needed to go out and <laughs> it's like no, th these things are very much his character and his character can also be training young men at the local footy club. Mm. It can Donating be... Donating money to charity. It yeah. can be going and doing shopping for the old woman who lives across the street. It can be being a really great dad. It can be, um, you know, being a mentor at work for young women. And it can also be being a rapist. Mm. These things all exist at the same time as each other. And that's what that's why when people hear about these again, quote unquote, good men doing these things, they're like, well, it can't I can't accept that. It must have been her fault. She must have misinterpreted it. Or what I really want to believe is that that bitch is lying. Mm. Mm. Are you reminding me? I recently saw the dry Mm. The movie. I haven't seen it, but I've read the book. Yeah, and so remember, I said to you after I saw the movie that it really fucked me up because <laughs> I hadn't read the book, so I really didn't know what to expect. The, the Dry is Jane Harper's crime novel. It's set in um, a country town in Australia, and it's it's a pretty hectic, like heavy story. It opens with a the slaying of an entire family, mm. what appears to be a murder suicide, mm. um, and a police officer comes to town, and it's it's sort of how the crime and investigation of it unfolds. Yeah, and it's sort of in that Australian gothic or Australian mm. noir kind of tradition, and so I expected, I don't know what I expected, but I didn't expect it to be so. Mm you know, brutal from the first um, opening scene. But it, I actually found, without having any spoilers, I actually found it really interesting how watching that movie really 
tapped into like my fears and knowledge of what is done to women and what is normal and you know how the different kind of suspicions kept landing on different men and looking at the kind of dynamics of that like it's a really it's a good movie if you want to kind of explore those things I will can I say a little spoiler sure okay if you haven't watched it and if you plan to or reading the book just cover your ears it's not a little spoiler. it's a giant spoiler (laughs) it's the killer but I was seeing how how amazing it was and how much it turned me upside down in a in a kind of satisfying way that the killer ended up being Mm, the mm, beloved mm, 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 mm. kind of you know middle class privileged kind of soft Mm. seeming man Mm. because it kind of confounded those ideas that there are these monstrous outliers who you could pick a mile away and you could pick in a lineup were obviously abusers of women Mm. um and that felt much more realistic to me well and also the 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 actual killer the reason that he did it wasn't born out of misogyny per se Mm. it was it was to do with um money and uh, I think it's an insurance a gambling debt a gambling or debt yeah. or something like that and this family ended up being the victims of it uh, and I thought that was interesting in the way that with the way that society frames violence men's violence against women is so often just as it's um the only people who could possibly be guilty of that are pure misogynists the kind of the kind of in the same way that they think of the only racist that's really racist is the kind of person who would burn a cross on mm-hmm. on their mm-hmm. lawn. When actually, that's just the peak of racism. When actually, the respectable white lady who's calling the cops on the guy yeah, who's trying yeah. to look at fucking birds in Central Park or whatever yeah, exactly. is is just as despicable as someone with a swastika yeah. on their back. And in the same way as misogyny, that you know, people. A lot of people, and most of them are men, but some of them are women, love to excuse or absolve themselves of of being upholders of misogyny by saying, well, I would, I don't think that way about women. But, you know, like, bloody... Essentially they're saying, I'm not that bad. Oh, my God. I'm not Phil, as bad as Phil him. Corey, an Australian journalist writing the other day of Scott Morrison, our distinctly misogynistic evangelical church-going prime minister who 100% does not think that women belong in public life, even though he would never be able to come out and say that, but does not believe that. Phil Corey writing an article saying, oh, well, you know, Scott Morrison's not a misogynist. Far from it. He's just he's just a bit of a blunderer and he hasn't he hasn't got enough women around him. Like, um what? So he's not a misogynist, he's just a blunderer who doesn't have enough women around him because he doesn't think that surrounding himself with women has any value. He doesn't think that he, – he thinks it's a really weird coincidence that it just so happens that none of the people who are good enough to work at his level happen to be – women Mm. i'm going to share this story because i have the screenshot to back it up and look if they want to someone wants to make a problem of it with me then they can do so but i don't think that scott morrison wants any additional trouble on his plate right now someone messaged me recently and said that they um you know this was back in around 2013 they were an international relations student and they were with with their kind of cohort of other Brilliant students were invited to Parliament House and they were separated into groups and each group would be given access to a senator or a minister to be able to ask questions. Now, these were all people who obviously were angling to have jobs either as politicians or working as lobbyists, working in international relations, very smart. Mm -hmm. Um, As she described it, you know, we were the kind of the cream of the crop of our academic institutions. So she had originally been in a group that was meant to be speaking with Penny Wong, but Penny Wong, unfortunately, this was when the Labor government, uh, the Labor Party was in government, and Penny Wong had something come up. So they they were replaced with um, Scott Morrison, which she was like, "Fuck, gutting." Yeah, but she said, and this was when Scott Morrison was immigration minister, I think, and she said, "I I I gave him a question on a silver platter, basically, so that he could have made himself look good in answering it." And it was when Julia Gillard was Prime Minister and she was obviously being subjected to horrific misogyny, um, which, you know, people have always excused by saying, oh, well, everyone who's a politician gets picked on. John Howard got picked on for his eyebrows. Like, I'm sorry. Mm. Making a joke about a very powerful man's, a very powerful white man's bushy eyebrows is not actually the same as making a joke about a woman's big red box, which was the name of a, of a dinner menu item that was uh, included at a Liberal Party fundraiser dinner. 
that was hosted by Alan Jones. comments about her hair, her thighs, yes. her ass, her body, her womb. Yeah, her Her boyfriend womb. being gay. Like every kind of speculation was pure misogyny. Yes. I mean, Tony Abbott stood next to signs calling her Bob Brown's bitch and saying ditch the witch. I'm sorry, that is not the same. Mm. Anyway, she goes to this meeting with Scott Morrison and all these other students and she says, what would you say to young women who – wanted to have a career in politics but look at how Julia Gillard is treated and and feel like maybe this space is not for them. And she told me that he replied by looking at her, pushing himself back in his chair in that way that like men can do when they're just sort of like thrust their cock at you. Oh. You know, like yeah. And he said he said, not every woman wants to be not every woman wants to enter politics. When I married my wife, all she wanted was to be a mum. And I gave that to her. And she was like, okay, well, I want to work in international <laughs> relations. Um, and that's not exactly the question I was asking you. But when she – so she sent me this and, and I was like, fuck, if that doesn't also just illustrate – gross. I know, it's gross. <laughs> yeah, it's so gross. I gave that to her. I she plowed said, my wife she said, and I'll, she became she a said, mother. She said, I'll never forget that. It's like burned into my brain. Jesus I gave that to her. Gross. The thing is that this is – I feel like that anecdote – reflects very clearly exactly who our Prime Minister is. He doesn't believe that women belong in public life. He thinks that women entering public life are, and he is, again, I'll repeat, an evangelical churchgoer. He believes that women who enter public life are um, working against what God intends for them, which is to be homemakers and uh, props for men to build their power and capital on. And, and, and that's how Jenny to, is used. And that's how Jenny is used. She's always talking about Jenny, I spoke to Jenny, I spoke to the girls, blah, blah, blah. So that's, it's, they're all platforms for these men. And so when you have – the reason I'm telling that story is because then when you have the system itself and the players in it that are working so hard to maintain the system and its primacy turn around and say things like, well, he's not a misogynist. He loves women. He's just a blunderer. Mm. This is how the invisibilization of misogyny works because mm. we can't even point to the men who are practitioners of it and say this is what they're doing because unless they're actually in the street or we're made to believe that unless they're actually in the street and I'm sorry I'm going to be graphic now beating the shit out of a woman and screaming at her I hate you I'm a misogynist then somehow misogyny isn't real which as you say Phil Curry doesn't realize in that moment that he's enabling misogyny and patriarchy or maybe he does um, I mean, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he probably thinks, what a terrible accusation to level at our Prime Minister. When he personally, as far as I know, or you know, has never done anything but don't violent you think, towards a woman. Don't you think it also is, it comes back to that thing of like men, yes, men are terrified of being labelled sexual abusers, mm. but they're also terrified of being labelled sexists. Mm. Like, they can acknowledge the oh, spectrum. That's a, yeah, that's an awful accusation yeah. to make. How dare you? I have, dare you I label have a me. wife. <laughs> I love women. I own plenty of them. Yeah. <laughs> it's that kind of, like, cognitive dissonance that Phil Curry and other people are creating, helping to create, but mm. they're also maintaining and upholding it. And mm. so when people speak out against, when Julie get like, you know, in the misogyny speech, when she says, you know, I'm piercing through this veil of propriety and apathy where mm. people are just accepting the status quo. And I'm going to say, fuck you, this guy is a piece of shit. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. But, but basically that's – I think she'd be she like, was, yeah, I think I said that. She was like, I'm not going to be lectured. The misogyny speech you decoded. <laughs> Um, just the short Reader's Digest version. <laughs> um, yeah, she pierced through that that veil of of acceptance and apathy mm. that everyone was operating under. And she said, "Are you kidding? Are you this guy, mm. this person here, who literally constantly voices mm. his misogynist ideas?" Um, and so that's the thing: is that yeah. Tony Abbott, who talks about the housewives of Australia. Tony Abbott, Scott Morrison, and and Labor leaders as well. You know, they're all part of the same problem. Mm. The, the the thing is, as well, it's very interesting and very telling. And I know that everyone listening to this, every woman at least, will feel this keenly. It is so much easier for men 
particularly men who aren't actually feminists, but it's so much easier for men to pretend to be feminists, to claim the title without actually ever having to prove anything, but to say I am a feminist because they'll be praised. You know, Tony Abbott used to talk about how much he loved women. Of course, I, of course I love women. Scott Morrison talks about how much he loves women. Scott Morrison probably hasn't ever gone quite so far as calling himself a feminist, but Tony Abbott did call himself a feminist once. Tony Abbott was a white ribbon ambassador. Totally. <laughs> That's acceptable for men, even men in conservative parties, to say, well, of course I am this thing. Of course mm. I support women's rights. The same women in those parties cannot come out and say it. I mean, this is, I have no love lost for Julie Bishop. I think that she was a woman with extraordinary power who had the ability to make change for women in the Liberal Party. Not that I give a fuck about the Liberal Party, but had the, the you know, had the potential to be able to make that change. But she played her role as the dutiful handmaiden that whole time and insisted there was nothing to see here. And it wasn't until they fucking knifed her in the front mm. That she came out and said, well, actually, it's been it's pretty bad here, isn't it? Like, mm. no shit, Jules. Mm. Um, but Julie Bishop... But it is good could, that she's come out. I know, but Julie Bishop could never at the time come out and say, I'm a... Fem-. I mean, look, to be honest, I'm going to be controversial here. I don't think you can be a member of the Liberal Party and be a feminist. I don't think that that kind of feminism is inclusive to yeah, well, marginalised women. So I, how can it be And I think there's feminism? plenty of members of the Labor Party and the Green Party and independents who aren't feminists either. Um, so I think yeah. it's, you know, I think it's, it's a systemic issue. But to leave, leave aside that problem for a second and say it is actually good, I find it encouraging and heartening, unlike other leftist acquaintances of mine who are like, well – Fuck them! I don't fucking care about the liberal party. I don't fucking care about the liberal party. I actually do care about the liberal party, which is a weird thing to say, because I think that the more women that come forward, like Brittany Higgins, like Catherine Cusack recently, like Julie Bishop, like uh, you know the other women who are starting to speak up and say, we are not represented in the upper echelons of this party, not because we're not good enough, but because we're being beaten to that punch by mediocre men. Um, I think that any space look, – look, I mean, this is hard to articulate in a, in a short conversation, but I think any space moving towards gender equality, moving towards gender parity, um, where these are people who wield power – over the way our society runs, I think is a good thing. So I do think it's actually probably a tipping point for the Liberal Party as well to start – they're starting to talk about quotas. Scott Morrison this week for the very first time because he's on the ropes said that he was open to the conversation of quotas and that's long overdue. Mm. And I think that um, we're not going to see 50-50 representation in parliament, in courts, in – CEOs and boards until we mandate it. Mm. And so I think I, I'm one of those feminists, one of those horrible liberal feminists who believes that that's important, that it's important to me that women are represented at every level of power in our society because I think that that does change our culture. Yeah. I mean, that's the pragmatic view, isn't it? It's just I, I do come back to that, well, 50-50 of people who still want to shit on everyone else is still people who want to shit on everyone else. Yeah, and until, like, I don't get me wrong, I want a lot of those systems and a lot of those structures dismantled. But mm. as long as they exist, I think that men having to answer to women in positions of authority and power over them is a good thing. Mm. And I think that, so for instance, in football clubs, I think the sooner we have female coaches, female CEOs, female um umpires within the system I think that is going to have an effect on the way that misogyny mm. grows and thrives yeah, at course. the club level and so that all matters to mm. me it does matter to me and so but we just also need to follow through with you know recognizing that it's not just dis- it's not just inequality between men and women that is having an impact on uh, the liberation of people in our society like yeah i know i know i'm not i'm just reminding agree. i'm just yeah. saying this for, for listeners, you know, that we also need to dismantle white supremacy we yeah. need to dismantle homophobia and transphobia and ableism completely and, um radically reimagine what not what those systems could look like but what a new system could look like 
You've been listening to the Big Sister Hotline with me, your host, Clementine Ford. I know that we've had a few different formats the last couple of weeks. We haven't gotten to the questions, but that's just because there's been so much to talk about and I could not figure out a way to exit the conversation and enter the questions, but we will get back to them, I promise. Thank you so much for being listeners. If you like the show, please rate and review it and share it with your friends. If you're one of those people who writes to me often and says, how can I get my boyfriend or my husband or my partner or my brother or my father or whatever to listen and understand these issues, then maybe you might suggest they start listening to the Big Sister Hotline because we do talk a lot about feminist topics, we talk about politics, and we really try to unpack how all of these things transpire and operate in the society that we live in. So maybe suggest this. Uh, You can support the making of this show at my Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Clementine underscore Ford. Also send a question to the Big Sister Hotline by contacting me on bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the show and I hope you continue to tune in. Thank you very much for being here. Karen Pickering, you are incredible. Why don't you tell the listeners about Churchill FM, the podcast? So it's coming soon. You can find out more information by following me on Instagram at Karen Pickering and my Patreon details are there and there's more info over there if you can chuck in a few bucks every month to help me um, do all of the work that I do. Um, but the podcast is um, is coming soon and it's going to be much like this. It's going to be me talking with um, amazing feminist thinkers and speakers and dreamers and uh, imagining you know how things could be better as soon as as soon as we Mm. overthrow the patriarchy Mm. well I can't wait to listen to it Karen you're amazing people can follow you on Instagram as well where where can they find you at Karen Pickering at Karen Pickering you like me don't use Twitter anymore which is a very wise choice but you also do have a Facebook page so you can just go at Karen Pickering on Facebook and you often post very thoughtful um, like mini articles about things so I know that people who if they're not familiar with you then they will soon become huge fans thank you once again for thank being you on for the show. having me it's been a pleasure even though we were talking about pretty <laughs> heavy topics remember there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the big sister hotline we're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist especially now that it has to be over zoom so contact us instead the big sister hotline the phone lines are open Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.